on a fairly serious note, the Happy Father's Day, I just want to say thanks to the dads and the grandfathers who have stayed engaged with their kids and grandkids. Thank you. Um, it's especially meaningful to me in my own life because my dad has been involved. Um, but it, for the sake of our community and our church and our nation, thank you for staying involved. I know there's this pull in your heart that wants to get less involved and kind of back away, but thank you for resisting that and staying engaged as fathers for sure. Well, in, in response to Father's Day, I knew I was going to be preaching this day about six weeks ago, and uh, I've been processing and kind of uh, reflecting on my own fatherhood and being a husband and uh, as a man. And uh, honestly, I was preparing to pre- preach something else, and I was kind of venting to Nathan about all that's going on in my life. And then I talked to Sid this week, and then Nathan goes, you should be honest with everybody and just share what you're going through, and you should preach and share that. And so today's message is really just in response to what God's doing in my life, what God's teaching me, and what I've been reading in Scripture. So I think God causes our kids to grow, to give us a sense of urgency, if you, even if you don't have your own children, but you've got nieces and nephews, you, you haven't seen them for a few months, you realize when kids grow, it gives you that, <gasps> things are happening. They're changing. And um, over the past three to four years, as I process my own children growing, I get this kind of gulp in my throat of how fast things are going. In fact, one of my kids actually told me this week, Dad, life just seems to get faster and faster. And I kind of chuckled, and then I realized that that child is actually starting to think like an adult. Do you remember when you were a kid and life just stood still, and it, you were bored out of your mind? And you know how you, do, you adults have no idea what that's like? Because it's just, things are going busy, life is crazy. Well, I want to share briefly with you uh, God's gift for actually dealing with the chaos of life. And I think you guys can all relate to that. I think this, I'm in good company. How many of you guys feel like you come in here with a mind full? Put them up. Okay, so at least you guys are in good company with me. I want to share briefly with you what's going on in the life of the Meeks family. This is not my vent time where you all hear all the trash going on in our life. But I just want to share briefly so you can feel like, wow, one of our pastors, is, his life is a good chaos just as much as mine is chaos, right? And then I'm going to spend quite a bit of time giving you the background of our chapter in Nehemiah chapter 8. Because I want to make sure that you understand what's going on in the life of the people we're going to read about, the chaos that they'd experienced, and then you'll have a new appreciation for what we're going to read in Nehemiah chapter 8. So I've been processing last three or four years, and a lot of you already know this, but in 2015, uh, we actually were just finishing up a whole house renovation and got a call to go work at Fort Wilderness Ministries and spent the year raising financial support to be able to go do so. 2016, we moved north, and housing was very difficult to find, and so we started a new job up there and ended up buying another house that was a shell and worked a year on a whole house remodel. And two years there, and uh, Pastor Jim was on the edge of retirement, we found ourselves coming back here, And during the course of this last year, we've lived in a couple different friends' homes. And housing's hard to find and been difficult to find and uh, adjusting back to the church ministry here. And and then in 2019, like six, eight weeks ago, 
God opened up the door for us to own a home, and here we are yet again, house number three, complete whole house renovation. In fact, Sid came through this last week, and he said, this is not a renovation, this is a restoration. This is intense. And uh, so we find our lives kind of crazy. This year, we entered the high school scene. And so for those of you who have adult children or high school kids, you understand what that entails. Um, This week alone, we have two birthdays of of my children. Uh, This summer, I have a daughter who's going to be going into, we do a, when they turn 10, we do a man or woman trip. And it's kind of their entrance into stepping into being a godly man or godly woman. And so I have a daughter going through that. And I have these nagging questions in the back of my mind, like, do I have too many irons in the fire? Am I dropping the ball and leading my kids spiritually? Did I mention we're turning, we're turning 18 years married this summer in two weeks? Am I going on enough dates with my wife, right? I have all these questions. How can I possibly be all the things that God wants me to be for all the people in my life? Should my son get this app? Should he hang out with this friend? Should I work on this house or seize the moment with my children? It's Father's Day. When we're done here, should I go back and work on my house or should I spend time with my kids? These are the things that I'm facing. I asked this question. This came out of my journal. When's the last time I went on a date with my wife? Wait, did I pay that bill? Am I being a good friend? And the questions just keep going on. And so I'm being vulnerable with you all and I'm letting you know that in a season of Google Calendar, I got sticky notes all over my desk, and my, my schedule is all over, and I'm st- I still can't figure out how I can still be confused and so chaotic in my mind. I'm hoping some of you feel normal by hearing what's going on in the life of our family. So if you feel that same tension, and this Father's Day, I feel this sense of heaviness, and I feel a sense of pulled, kind of pulled in different directions. Um, You're in good company. And what I'm going to share today is I'm not going to give you cheap, easy answers to the challenges of your life. I'm not going to do that because I'm still working through things. But I feel like God has given me a focus, a place to plant my eyes in the middle of chaos. And as a result, the Lord is bringing joy in our life during this season. Is that fair? So I want to just share that with you guys today because the Lord has revealed himself to me. And if you can relate to a lot going on, I ask this question, what's been your learned response? When life is chaotic, can you relate to me? Number one, do you buckle down, grit your teeth, work longer hours, and just get her done? Maybe some of you guys can relate to that way. Okay? Some of you can relate to, you get stressed out, anxiety kicks in, and you just kind of fall apart. I've seen others, and I've seen this in my own life, where I look at somebody else, I read a good book, I read about somebody, and I just follow what they're doing. And how do they handle the stress? And they organize this way. And I think these are all natural responses, but I think we're going to find today in uh, uh, Nehemiah 8, they fall short. They're not really according to God's word, and they believe God has something so much in store for us. So today, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah 8. You'll see there's fill-in-the-blanks. You guys can grab pens in the back if you don't have one, and we'll be following along. But now, that's, that's kind of what's going on in our life. 
And so I feel a little bit good, chaotic. Is that fair? Like, the wheels are not falling off the bus, but it just feels like good chaos, but it's chaos. I want to share with you about what's going on in the life of the people in the text we're reading. It's going to be fairly extensive. I want to share a lot of details about it because I want you to go, okay, if these people had this going on, and this is the response in Nehemiah 8, I can do this too. This is what God's called me to do. I do want to warn you that we view people in Scripture very one-dimensional. We view them in a wrong way. Uh, We oftentimes will simplify their lives in relationship to how, in relation to how complex our lives are. So we read the text, we see them very one-dimensional, and then we think that's all that's going on in their life. But the truth is, the people of Scripture had complex lives just like us, if not more. In fact, today you're going to see that. So what's the chaos going on in the life of the people we're going to read about? Well, the setting is the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire is in, in power, and Israel has lost its independence, and they've been carried off into exile. And I've been, I was asking this question, how did they get here? Because I've been reading Second Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. The end of Second Chronicles describes how the people of Israel, God's chosen people, got carried off into exile. This is the description. It says this, They lost their view of the holiness of God. Holy just means they stopped setting him apart as special. They mocked God's messengers. It says they despised his word. And as a result, check out how it describes God. God's wrath was aroused without remedy. Ouch. Okay? And at that time, their temple was destroyed. The majority of their people were murdered. And there was a remnant that was carried off by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. Okay? That's the scene. Would you describe that as chaotic? If you're alive at this time, life is chaotic. And not too long, Nebuchadnezzar actually was overthrown by Cyrus of Persia. And I want to read you this passage because the Persian Empire came to being. And again, for those history buffs, this will be kind of fun for you. With me as we get to appreciate what we read in Nehemiah 8. Uh-oh, would you advance me back there? I'll read it for you. It says this, in Ezra chapter 1, it says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, And he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem." Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites and everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So there you have it in the text above me here that God moved a foreign king, though the people of Israel didn't recognize God as holy. God moved a foreign king 
to give permission for a remnant to go back to Jerusalem. Anybody who's willing, if you're of Jewish descent, you can go back. And by the way, here's money. And anybody else who's not going, you're to load them up with money to go build a temple to the God of Israel. So that being said, these returning exiles, do they have a lot going on? Answer is, yes, they do. And in Ezra 3 and 4, we see that the temple foundation was started. And you can actually see they started building it, and the neighbors were threatened by it. And so they sent a letter to the king, Cyrus, and said, do you remember how rebellious these people are? The people that land in Jerusalem are always trying to overthrow and release themselves from authority. And so out of fear, he halted the building of the temple. His successor, Darius, takes over of Persia, and he comes to power, and he gives permission for the finishing of the building of the temple. So you have two foreign kings who give the thumbs up God uses to build the temple in Jerusalem. Well, Darius' successor, Artaxerxes, comes to power, and he gives a command to a guy you may have heard of named Ezra. And he tells Ezra to come up from Babylon to get back to Jerusalem. And he says, I want you to establish the sacrifices for the God of Israel in Jerusalem. The temple's complete. I want you to go back and teach God's laws. And I want you to establish the sacrifices for the Lord. So he sends back money, animals, and somehow in this mix, God has used three foreign kings who recognized God's holiness, who helped build the temple and supported that endeavor, who helped establish sacrifices who supported that endeavor, and God was preparing the hearts of people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now in Nehemiah 1-7, through I want to share more about the details of Nehemiah's life because you have to understand what truly is going on. So Nehemiah enters the scene some 13 years after Ezra shows up in Jerusalem. You all with me still? Okay. Nehemiah enters the scene some 13 years later, and his job is to be the cupbearer for the king. If you want to talk about a stressful job, you're the insulating factor from the king getting poisoned. Don't sign me up for the job, friends. Right? So he stood before the king, which is a stressful job. He was the cupbearer for the king. And as the text says in Nehemiah 1 and 2, he was actually cupbearing for the king, and he receives news from his brother. He says, you remember all those people that traveled back with Ezra? They're in grave danger, and the walls of Israel, the walls of Jerusalem are being burned and they're torn down. And in his sadness, he kind of, he reveals his, his emotions to the king, and the king says, what's going on in Nehemiah? He prays to God and acts in faith. And he acts for a dismissal of his job. So this is not like, oh, I had a baby, I need six weeks off from my job type business. He asks the king for a dismissal for a very long period of time to go back. And he says, I would like to rebuild the walls. I need protection, and I need your money. And he prayed and asked God for it. And God used King Artaxerxes to actually grant his desire and his prayer. And it says that he actually led a, a, a there was a whole crew of uh, protection that came with him, came back to Jerusalem. 
Tell me, how chaotic is Nehemiah's life? Pretty busy, right? He then goes into travel. How many of you guys are business people that travel for work? Anybody? You travel quite a bit. Extensive travel. He then becomes general contractor of volunteers. Yeah. He brings all the materials together. He brings workers together. And in 52 days, they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which is a miracle in itself. Now, you think his job is done, but during the rebuilding, they had such uh, opposition and so many attacks that it says that half the workers had to stand guard with weapons, and the other half had weapons on their side at all times while they worked because they were being attacked. He gets it built, and King Artaxerxes says, Nehemiah, you're going to be the governor of Judah. And while being governor, he experiences famine. And the Jewish brothers and sisters, they actually start enslaving each other's kids. This is in Nehemiah 5. Because they have to eat, in order to pay back the food, they start enslaving each other's children and taking each other's land. He has to actually um, uh, uh, confront the social injustice. So folks, tell me. 12 years of this, he's a governor. How much is going on in Nehemiah? I would say this, what I share with you about my life is nothing. He's got a whole lot more chaos going on. So this is the, this is the, the, the climate, this is the atmosphere. They just finished the wall, they just dispersed, they get settled in their towns, and we're going to pick it up. I know it was a long intro. So I'm not going to preach as long from the text, but I want to read it together. In Nehemiah chapter 8, and we're going to see today that the the people, that's not working, Scott, either. You can advance it. The people respond in a unique kind of way of taking God's gift in the most chaotic time of their life. So today, you're going to see that when they read the word of God, they stand. So one more time, I'm going to invite you all. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 of uh, Nehemiah 8, you would just stand with me. And I want you to bear with me because there's some names in here that I have a hard time pronouncing. And you all have the luxury of sitting there quietly while I sit and try to pronounce them. So bear with me, okay? All right. Nehemiah chapter 8, and just bear with me through 12 verses, it says this. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with one accord in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord has commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. And beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, and on his left were Padeah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. 
verse 5, it says, Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. All the people lifted their hands and they responded, Amen! Amen! Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, and Peleah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Verse 10. Now Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. And do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. And do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. You guys may be seated. (coughs) So I praise God for his word and you guys bearing with me as I read it. And uh, you guys want to get your pens ready because we're going to be starting here in a few minutes with some of that outline. But I just want to repaint kind of the picture here. They were carried into exile because they didn't recognize God's holiness. They disregarded his teachers, or his prophets, and they ignored God's word. And what are they doing here? They're honoring God's messenger. They're listening to God's word. And they're setting apart a day as holy unto the Lord. It's such a beautiful picture. So God has given us a gift for sure, and we're going to look back to this text. What we have remaining, it's going to be quite simple today. It's not complex. You're going to see it straight from the text. What we have today are basically gifts that God's given us in response to our chaotic life. So the first one you see in verses 1 and 2 is that they prioritized meeting together with believers. Scott, you want to advance that one? And you'll see it. You guys can write that in there. In verses 1 and 2, By this time, the walls had been built. They'd gone their own ways. In verse 1, it says, When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with one accord in the square before the water gate. So it says they prioritized meeting together with those who were believers. And then it adds an extra emphasis, which is in one accord, for one common purpose. There was nothing convenient about getting back together. Nothing. They had been dispersed for years. They were just now getting settled back home, getting life in order, business in order, and they assembled back together. And the people of Israel understood for the first time the value of getting together because of the the amount of time they had been dispersed. They value getting back together. Pastor Sid's been talking about this at great lengths in the Life Together series. 
And these people with stress, with hardship, with travel, with attacks, with trying to settle their own families, they valued assembling together. Fair enough? They valued assembling. And uh, one of the things that uh, Nate and Sid and myself were talking about is when we, what we see is when people are under stress, the very first thing that people tend to do is to pull away from other believers. It doesn't make any sense, but it's our natural, learned, really honestly sinful response is that when life gets hard, life gets stressful, we tend to pull away. And in fact, they prioritize meeting. We mostly would actually say it's priority until it's not convenient. And I would challenge you today that if you come to church when it's convenient, when you assemble with believers when it's convenient, it's not really priority. It's not. And I just want to give you just a little bit of a shepherding warning. I've got five kids, and I've got five kids who enjoy sports. But I want to warn you, sports, the priority of them, can pull you away from the priority of the body of believers. Another one, those second homes, those cabins that we all kind of long for, when we stack our schedules all around just getting up to those cabins, it can actually be counterproductive and pull us away from the assembling with believers. And so I challenge you, if you're a snowbird, or I challenge you if you get a second home, that you don't let time lapse from when you leave here to where you're assembling with believers. It's super easy to slide away from believers. And I want to encourage you and warn you, because in our culture, the first thing that goes when we're in stress and chaos is the connecting and assembling with believers. Now, they prioritized gathering together, and then they did something. They asked Ezra to read and teach God's laws. And so the second thing you'll see in your outline is that, they, we'll see in verse 3, is that they listened attentively. You can write that in there. They listened attentively to the reading and the teaching of God's word. Now notice in verse 3, it says, He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. This is where you all should pause and say, That's like six or seven hours. Really? You all get like stir crazy after 35 to 40 minutes. And I just want to say, we, not you, we, our spiritual attention spans have dropped off the edge. In fact, we're ridiculous. And in fact, they had such resolve. If you think about this, it says in the end of verse 3, they listened attentively to the book of the law. How do you listen attentively for six or seven hours? Intentionally. You have to make intentional steps to listen attentively for six to seven hours. In fact, you may have noticed since I've been back from Fort Wilderness of this last year, I've been reading a lot of scripture. Whenever I've preached, I've tried to read a lot of scripture. And I kind of feel like, at least if you get nothing from me, you got the word of God, which is really all you need, right? So I figure if I read a lot of scripture, you all get it, and I've got my bases covered. But Sid and Nathan and I were talking about how uh, I, I realize I tend to lose a lot of you if I read a lot of scripture. Because it takes a real high amount of, of intensity and intentionality to stay engaged when the Word of God is being read. 
So, most of us would agree and say, God's word is really important. But we don't typically come to God's word with this kind of front posture, ready, engaged, attentive, body readiness to hear what God's word says. They were super attentive or attentive to the reading of God's word. And we need to come to God's word with resolve to submit and listen. But they didn't actually just submit and listen. But you'll see the next thing you guys can write in your outline, verses 4 through 8. They established the right posture. You can write that in there. They established the right posture to God's word. In verses 4 and 5, you see twice that it says God's word is elevated. Look at verse 4. Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Then it tells who's listed next to him. And look in verse 5. Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because why? He was standing above them. So as Ezra was teaching, they were all below the word of the Lord. So the posture was, God's word was elevated. And then when Ezra opens the book, and you see at the end of of verse 5, and as he opened it, what did the people do? They stood. So the first posture was, God's word is my authority. The next posture, posture is, it's like the president walked in the room. It's like the national anthem. You hear it, you jump, right? It's the idea behind when God's word is taught, there was a response to, I need to stand out of respect to its authority. Then we see in verse 6, which is really kind of cool, Ezra praised the Lord. In other words, it resulted in praise. He he praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people resulted in lifting hands, they worshipped, and then they dropped down and got low. So they didn't just listen attentively. They established the right posture. Follow this. God's word is my authority. I stand out of respect. Then he says in here that it resulted in worship. They lifted their hands in praise saying, Thank you God for your word. And as a result of it, they got low. So I asked this question, When's the last time You changed your posture in response to the reading, the teaching, and the authority of Scripture. When's the last time? I want to encourage you that when you're in your home, get out of your couched position and get into a position of submission to God's Word. It is appropriate for us to stand. That's why we did it today. We don't have to do it all the time, but it's appropriate for sure when God's word is read out of submission to God and his word, to stand out of reverence and respect. It's appropriate to kneel. And it's appropriate to lay face down in response to God's word. So they didn't just listen attentively, but they actually established the right body posture. Just, just a side note. Some of you guys don't want to be draw, attention drawn to you, and I get that. And some, one of the things that I have personally done that I do on occasion In response to when God's word is being taught, I actually sit there and I put my palms up. And I just find that as my palms are up and I'm available, I find that my heart feels more open and more receptive to what God's word is saying. So just something. It's just something. It's a response to put your body in the right posture towards submission to God's word. 
So when's the last time you've done that? And I encourage you, perhaps, to start responding in the right posture. And then lastly, we see, you guys can write this in there, in verses 9 through 11, they recognize the holiness of God. So these people were very busy, and they prioritized getting together. They prioritized hearing God's word and putting their body in the right posture. But we also see that they prioritized recognizing the holiness of God. You guys can write that in there. In verse 9 it says, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. So they commanded a holy day for their holy God. Holy just means, it means like, I'll just describe like consecrated or hallowed or set apart or special. And so they were to set apart a special day for their unique and special God. In fact, what kind of the idea is, they're saying is, today is holistically unlike any other day. And so instead of just saying, we do this one thing different this day, if you take this day and you put it on this shelf, separate from these shelves, that's a completely set apart, holy day. Unique like any other day. Unlike any other day. Then he says, what are you to do with this unique, special day? And he gives the command, he tells them in verse 11, the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day, and do not grieve. So they were to be still as a way of acknowledging his holiness. They had plenty going on, friends. Their lives are not overly simplistic. In fact, I would argue that their lives were much more complex than my life, for sure. And they were challenged to prioritize being still to recognize the specialness of their Creator. Culturally, we're very poor at this. And what the Lord's been teaching me is that we rob God of worship as being holy and set apart from His creation when we don't set apart a special day as unto Him. So in our busy lives, is there any regular day that we set apart as holy to worship the Lord? I'm being honest with you all. Six weeks of owning this remodeling project that we're kind of getting through, and three separate times the Lord has convicted me that every spare moment that I have, I'm trying to get over there and work on it. And this, this is how slow I am. Three separate times the Lord has convicted me of Seth, Where in your week are you maintaining a day unlike every other day where you set it apart to be still to recognize my holiness? So I share that with you is that we're in this together. This is not me preaching at you guys. This is us doing this together that we have a holy God. We're called to set him apart as holy. He's not God among many gods. He is the only God. And we actually are called to set apart special day to acknowledge that he's our unique and special God. So I want to invite you to that. So to sum this up, they were insanely busy. They were crazy busy like we were. And, but in the middle of their chaos, they recognized this final thing. You'll see it. Scott, would you advance that one? They embraced the gift of three things in their busy life. Number one, they embraced the gift of assembling with believers and those who followed the Lord. These are people who understood what it was like to not have a fellowship of believers. 
they actually had all the inconveniences of not coming to, of coming together and they chose to get together because they realized that life is better together. Number two, they recognized and embraced the gift of submitting to the reading and teaching of God's word. So they didn't see God's word as a, a have to. They saw it as a treasure. They saw it as a treasure. And then lastly, they embraced the gift of being still and recognizing God's holiness for a day. They actually acknowledged the mystery of a holy God. So the old nation of Israel that was carried off into captivity, they didn't do this. They disregarded God's messengers. They disregarded God's word. And they did not set apart God as holy. But this new crew got this and they prioritized it. So a question for you is this. When life is busy, and it is, what is your spiritual muscle memory for how to handle the chaos of life? I'm willing to bet the vast majority of us have a spiritual muscle memory that looks something like this. When life gets hard, our spiritual muscle memory starts withdrawing from believers. When life gets chaotic... We get out from under the teaching of God's word and we say it's important, but we tend to just start to read it less and less. And when life gets busy and chaotic, we stop taking moments and days to recognize the holiness of God. So what's your natural response? Gentlemen, it's Father's Day, so I'm going to just talk directly to you. Our culture needs born-again Christians who acknowledge God's holiness in their life, who submit themselves to God's word, and value the assembling of believers. It's our call. And so in those nagging questions, am I being enough? Am I doing enough? Am I being there for my family? Am I being a good pastor? Am I doing all these things? I believe that Ezra and Nehemiah had the same questions, the same challenges. But one thing's repeated throughout both books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They keep saying... The gracious hand of God was upon me. They keep acknowledging God is holy and it was him who sustains me through all of this. So, for everyone here, and this is not just men, this is everyone, whatever you face today, the people of Israel at the time realized you couldn't afford to neglect these three gifts that God's given you. We're in this together, so I want to challenge you with this. Every opportunity that you have, it is in your spiritual best interest, even in the middle of chaos, to do your best to get around those who believe in Jesus. The fellowship of believers is one of God's greatest gifts for us. Number two, any opportunity, whether it's in the car, turning on the radio, and hearing God's word taught, whether it's listening to podcasts, whether it's getting in God's word, whether it's memorizing scripture, letting other people quote it to you, Getting under God's word brings joy and refreshment to the soul in the middle of chaos. And lastly, I want to encourage you to be still. And I'm not real good at this. But I have to say, when I do, it sure seems like God fills in the gaps. Of not just spiritual encouragement, but it seems like God gets the jobs done somehow when I acknowledge him as holy and I set him as part. As I set him apart from anything else in my life. So I want to encourage you with that. Get with believers. 
Get under God's word. And don't forget to set apart God as holy because the people of Israel experienced the wrath of God without remedy. Thank the Lord we have Jesus Christ. And we have a remedy through his son Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. But I want to challenge you today. Don't just balk down and deal with life. He's given us a gift. Embrace his gifts and you'll find freedom and joy in the middle of chaos. Let's pray. Uh, Our Father, um, thank you for the journey you're taking me on these last weeks and teaching me about your holiness, teaching me about the value of being under your word, and teaching me the value of my brothers and sisters here who believe in you. Thank you for those great gifts that you've given us. Most importantly, we thank you for your son Jesus who died and rose again for us that we could have eternal life by faith in him. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, we're thankful that uh, we can have forgiveness through Jesus. But Lord, in all this, help us to never sacrifice. Help us to never just get rid of the very gifts that you've given us to help work through the chaos of life. Lord, you've intended joy for us in the middle of chaos. So I pray that you would empower my friends here as they experience life to value their brothers and sisters being together. Help them to get under your word and submit to it. And I pray that this week there would be a glow of stillness as people quiet their lives, they clear their schedules to recognize your holiness and to worship you in their heart. Lord, we stand in awe just like the people in Ezra's time did. We stand in awe of your word. We stand in awe of you. And today we recognize you as holy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.